0: Turning again tonight to the book of Psalms and to the final of the Psalms of Asaph, which is Psalm 83. So turn with me to Psalm 83, and we'll read it in its entirety. It's called A Song, A Psalm of Asaph. O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent, and, O God, do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, Come, and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also has joined with them. They have become a help to the children of Lot. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin at the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their princes like Ziba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. O my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Fill their faces with dishonor, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever, and let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. Father, we pray that you would speak to us tonight, that we would know that you alone are the Most High over all the earth, no matter what you ordain, no matter what is happening in our lives, or even to us, that you alone are the Lord and that you alone are most high over all the earth. Teach us this tonight. Make us confident of it tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, as you know, over the last several weeks, we've been giving our attention to the book of Psalms, and as we've done that, of course, our primary focus has been to consider and expound the meaning and application of various individual psalms. We'll look at a psalm here and a psalm there and consider what it says and what it means. But along the way, we've also paused to make some observations about the psalms in general to notice some things that can be said about the collection as a whole, to see the unique value of this entire portion, this entire genre of Scripture. And the book of Psalms, we have said, is unique and invaluable because perhaps more than any other portion of Scripture and more effectively than any other type of music or song, the Psalms seem to know and to give voice to the sorrows and the trials and the fears that we all experience, don't they? The psalmist seem so often to have stood exactly where we are standing and to have walked in our own shoes and to know exactly what we're feeling, and they seem so often to say exactly what we would like to say to our God. When the suffering is great, when the tears are many, when the nights are long, and we just seem to be therefore for at a loss for words and unsure of how a Christian ought actually to speak to God from underneath the cross, the psalms so often put just the right words into our mouths. Haven't you found that to be true? Haven't you found yourself, we've asked this already as we've looked at the psalms, but haven't you found yourself sometimes reading through the psalms and saying to yourself, that's exactly how I feel. That's exactly what I'd like to say to God. Maybe you hadn't quite been able to verbalize your thoughts or your feelings until that point. Or maybe you were worried that the thoughts and and the words that were in your mind wouldn't be appropriate to include in your prayers, but you were reading through the Psalms and you said to yourself, if the psalmist can beg God to hurry up, Psalm 70, if the psalmist can ask God why and how long, Psalm 74, if the psalmist can be frank about his doubts in Psalm 77, Perhaps God won't mind if I come to him with the same sorts of pleas and questions and fears and doubts myself. And the Psalms in that way give you permission to come to God with your raw emotions and questions and so on. And tonight as we read Psalm 83, perhaps we'll find ourselves saying, if the psalmist can pray for God's vengeance, if the psalmist can ask God to make his enemies like chaff before the wind, then perhaps there will be occasion for me to pray like the psalmist prays in this psalm. Here's another value, not only of Psalm 83 in specific, but of the psalms in general. Namely, that the psalms, almost like any hymn or praise song that you could ever sing, the psalms give us words to sing to God when the church building has been burned down by arsonists. The psalms give us words to sing to God when the pastor has been thrown in jail for preaching the gospel, or when the missionaries have been killed by extremists, or when sharing our faith is considered criminal activity. The psalmists give us words to sing, to say, to pray to the Lord even then. And Psalm 83 is one of the great examples of that. Well, someone says, thank God we don't have to sing songs like that ourselves. Praise God, we are not like the psalmist. We're not surrounded by the Philistines and the Amalekites and so on who are seeking to wipe us out, verse 4, so that the name of the church would be remembered no more. Praise God, we're not in that situation. That is something to praise God for, isn't it? But it's only temporary. Because if there's anything that the psalms teach us about life in this world... The Psalms teach us that Jesus was right when he said, in the world you will have tribulation. John 16, 33, ESV. In the world you will have tribulation. That is why the book of Psalms is filled with prayers for just such dark days and for just such long nights because tribulation, opposition even persecution, are normal in the Christian life. If we take seriously the evidence that we find in the book of Psalms, the evidence that we find on the pages of Scripture, and the evidence that we find on the pages of church history, we will come to the conclusion that the relative freedom that we possess in this place and at this time to exercise our faith without fear is by no means a given. And by no means should we blindly imagine that it will always be that way. Indeed, that's one of the paramount lessons of this psalm, I think. You can mark this down as our first heading tonight if you're keeping track of them. Namely, that persecution is not abnormal. That's one thing this psalm teaches us. Persecution of God's people is not abnormal abnormal look at verses one through four again oh god do not remain quiet do not be silent and oh god do not be still for behold your enemies make an uproar and those who hate you have exalted themselves they make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones they say they have said come and let us wipe them out as a nation that the name of israel be remembered no more How many times on the pages of the Psalms in specific and how many times on the pages of the scriptures in general do we read words like that and events that give rise to these kinds of words? Both the Old and the New Testaments are filled with examples of God's people being persecuted, aren't they? Sometimes the persecution is an attack on an individual like Joseph by his brothers or David by King Saul, or Jeremiah, or Paul and Silas in prison. Most of all, Jesus, right? Jesus died for our sins, yes, but that all happened through a process of him being persecuted for who he was and for what he said about God. And then at other times, the persecution falls not just on an individual among God's people or a few individuals, but on a larger group or even on God's people as a whole, as in Israel's enslavement in Egypt, Or the overlordship of the Philistines and the Midianites and so on throughout the book of Judges. Or in later times, the sacking of God's nation and cities by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And then in the New Testament, there's the scattering of the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 8. God's people in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, are constantly having people breathing down their necks, making life difficult persecuting them, killing them sometimes because of their attachment to the Lord. And Asaph, of course, wrote this psalm during one particular period of suffering and danger, but there were many, many times when God's people could have turned to this very psalm and said, that's exactly how we feel. That's exactly what we need to be saying and singing to God right now. How many times could the men and women of the Old and New Testaments have said in verse 2, Behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. Again and again and again, they could have taken these words on their lips. And that's not only true of biblical saints, But that's been true of the people of God ever since as well, always seeming to have trouble just around the corner and persecution always being on the horizon and sometimes being very real. I think of the arenas of the Roman Empire during the period of the early church where the Christians were on occasion thrown to the wild beasts as sport and entertainment for the masses. I think of pre-Reformation England, where a group of parents were burned at the stake for teaching the Lord's Prayer to their children, not in Latin but in English, so they could actually understand what God said. I remember the Scottish Covenanters of the 1600s, who, in order to to preach and hear the true gospel and not the mumbo jumbo that was preached in the churches, would go out and worship God in the open air, and who, because they would not kowtow to the king's religion, were hunted down like animals out in those fields as they worshiped and in their cottages and subjected to the cruelest tortures and executions simply for trying to worship Jesus according to this book. And then I think of people closer to our own day, pastors imprisoned in China, churches burned in Nigeria, Christians in various places who have to meet in secret for fear of what their families or their neighbors or the government might do to them. There are Christians all over the world tonight, our brothers and sisters, who could read Psalm 83, 1 through 3, and say, Lord, that is exactly how we feel. That is exactly what we want to say to you tonight, Lord. Do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. And, oh God, do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. And those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. That is a story of so much of history. Now, again, we may find ourselves breathing a sigh of relief and thanking God that that's not the story of our particular history. That we are not among those people who are suffering like that? Or are we actually among those people? Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And I believe in this context, the author of Hebrews is referring to those who are in prison because of their faith and testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen to it again. He says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. In other words, though we are not actually in prison, though we are not actually underneath the cross that some of our brothers and sisters are in the world tonight, we ought to pray for them and remember them as though we were a part of their group. Our affinity with our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world ought to be so real, so palpable, that we would pray Psalm 83 kinds of prayers in the first person on their behalf as earnestly as if we were actually in the dungeon too. That we would be able to say, though we're sitting in an air-conditioned auditorium, knowing that we're part of a larger group of God's people who are suffering O God, do not remain quiet, do not be silent, and O God, do not be still, for behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones, that we would pray that as though we were with them in the dungeon tonight. And so, in a sense, we are living in Psalm 83, because so many of our family members are. Isn't that how it works? When someone in your family suffers, you suffer with them, don't you? And when someone in your family, the family of God, suffers, you suffer, you pray, you remember with them. So we ought to pick up a copy of the Voice of the Martyrs newsletter that some of you get in the mail and others of you can get from the resource rack in the hallway, and we ought to read it carefully. And we ought to remember the prisoner's As though in prison with them. We ought to remember the widows who've lost their husbands to persecution as though we were widows with them. We ought to remember those who are meeting in secret as though we were meeting in secret with them. And we ought to pray Psalm 83 kinds of prayers as though we were suffering as well. Then I want you to notice something else about the persecution of Christians. Not only is persecution not abnormal, But we must also say in the second place that persecution is not against Christians only. Persecution is not against Christians only. In other words, it's not simply that the bullets fly and the laws are passed against God's people, but that through God's people, the real target of persecution is God himself. And we hear echoes of that here in Psalm 83. When people persecute us They're really persecuting our God. For instance, listen again to verse 2. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. Did you hear it? The psalmist doesn't simply call the Philistines and the Amalekites and so on our enemies. He calls them your enemies, O God. And then we hear the same emphasis again in verse 5. Yes, These various pagans, verse 3, conspire together against your treasured ones, but in doing so, verse 5, they've really conspired against, they've really made a covenant against you, he says. You see that? They've conspired against us, verse 3, but really what they're doing is conspiring against you. The psalmist understands what is really going on in spiritual warfare, namely that God's people aren't usually hated simply for their own sakes. Now, sometimes we do stupid things, As individuals or as larger groups of Christians that make people dislike us for our own sakes. But usually, if we are walking with the Lord, we're not hated for our own sakes, are we? God's people are usually hated because God Himself is hated. It's just what Jesus said to Saul on the Damascus Road, isn't it? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? are you persecuting me? That sounds strange at first, doesn't it? Saul was persecuting the Christians, right? He wasn't harming Jesus. He wasn't presiding over the stoning of Jesus. He wasn't gathering letters to imprison Jesus. He couldn't touch Jesus. But that's exactly the point. If Saul could have stoned Jesus, if Saul could have stood and presided over the stoning of Jesus, if he could have written letters to have Jesus arrested, he would have. But he couldn't. So instead, he cracked the whip on Jesus' people. He was hurting them as a way to get to him. He was hurting the Christians because he hated Christ. He had conspired, verse 5, and made a covenant against the Lord more than anything else. And that's why he was so angry with the Lord's people. And I suggest to you that the same was true in those Roman arenas. The same was true in pre-Reformation England. The same was true in the killing times in Scotland. And it's also true today in China and Nigeria and Belarus and so on. Yes, there is a hatred for Christians. But the hatred for Christians is really rooted in a hatred for Christ. Now, those doing the persecuting might not always say it that way. In fact, they might not even realize what the true object of their hatred actually is. They may, in fact, believe that by eradicating or punishing or marginalizing or making life difficult for the Christians, they're actually doing a service to their country or to their neighborhood or to their own religion or what have you. But deep down, whether they realize it or not, the reason they think that way is because they don't know God. And the reason they're so adamant in their feelings is because in their hearts, not only do they not know God, but they hate him and his ways. We are, all of us, apart from Christ, enemies of God, aren't we? And so it's not surprising that people would hate God and hate his ways, even if they couldn't put their finger on why they're so upset, that that would be the reason, and they would take it out on his representatives in the world because they can't touch him. They may hate the lordship that Jesus claims over our lives. They may hate the liberty that he brings to those who are beaten down. They may hate the message of grace over against works. They may hate the fact that Jesus' subjects are more loyal to him than they are to Caesar. But whatever it is, at the end of the day, those who persecute Christians are actually persecuting and revealing their thoughts about Christ. They make shrewd plans against your people, verse 3, and conspire together against your treasured ones. For verse 5, they have conspired together with one mind against you. They make a covenant. They've conspired against your treasured ones because they have made a covenant against you. Those who persecute Christians are revealing their true thoughts about Christ. And not only do a person's thoughts toward Christians reveal their true thoughts about Christ, but also their actions toward Christians are as good as though they had done them to Jesus himself. Their actions toward God's people are just as though they had done them to Jesus himself. Jesus said that in Matthew 25, didn't he? To the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. To the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Or as we're told in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Or it could be translated the pupil of his eye. That's how much God loves his people and how closely his glory and his pleasure is connected to our well-being. He who touches you touches the pupil of God's eye. Now those those ought to be comforting words to those who are persecuted. Because the persecutors don't touch the pupil of God's eye without getting a response. God will arise. He will not sit silent. He will answer the prayer of verse 1. That's one reason why the psalmist can pray as he does in the remainder of this psalm. That God's judgment would come. Because he knows that they've touched the pupil of God's eye. Now it might seem difficult for us to pray like the psalmist did there in verse 13. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. We might not normally think to pray that way. But when we realize that a jab at God's people is to poke God himself in the eye. It seems a little less far-fetched to call on the name of the Lord to take vengeance like this against those who persecute his godly ones because he's taking vengeance not only for our sakes, but for his own. And that brings us to our third main heading. We've said so far that persecution is not abnormal, that persecution is not against Christians only, but against Christ ultimately. And our third point comes in the form of a question. Namely, how do we pray for those who persecute us? What does this psalm teach us about how we pray for those who persecute us? And we must pray for them, right? Jesus taught us to do that in Matthew five didn't he? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But I think you'll agree with me that it doesn't sound like Jesus had in mind a Psalm 83 kind of prayer when he said that. Perhaps he had in mind the kind of prayer that he himself said from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. So, before we look again at the prayers of God's vengeance, or for God's vengeance in Psalm 83, let's remember Psalm 83 is not the only way that we should pray for those who persecute us. There are other kinds of prayers, and yet Psalm 83 is here on the pages of Scripture, is it not? And I don't think that Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 about loving our enemies and praying for them in that kind of way in any way nullifies the kind of prayer we find exampled here. After all, Matthew 5 is the same chapter in which Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus upholds the Old Testament, and so I think that while a Matthew 5, kind of prayer ought to be our default response to the persecution of God's people, there is still some place and some application for Psalm 83 kinds of prayers, too. Because God does indeed take vengeance on his enemy, doesn't he? And when he does that, when God takes vengeance, it's a good thing. It's a right thing. It's a holy thing. It's a just thing. And so there must be a place for asking God to do what is good and right and holy and just. And Psalm 83 shows us how to do it. So let's just look at the way the psalmist prays and see what we can learn. First, I just want you to notice the psalmist's appeal to historical precedent in verses 9 through 11. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin at the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. He's just thinking about God's vengeance in the past, and all of these examples there are, of course, the various enemies of God, or some of the enemies of God, during the time of the judges. Enemies whom God judged, enemies on whom God took vengeance in those days. And the psalmist's request, as he remembers God taking vengeance in the past, is simply, Lord, do it again. His logic is that if God so dealt with his enemies like this in former times, then it was legitimate for him to ask God to do it today. And I think there's still logic in that historical precedent. In other words, I think that Christians are justified sometimes in praying that God would overthrow certain dictators. That God would imprison men who beat their wives or children for converting to Christianity. That God would even take their lives, if that's what is necessary. God has done those kinds of things in the past. And his anger burns against people like that in the present. And so, while we, yes pray for people to be converted, we pray that they'll be like Saul of Tarsus, we read the rest of the Bible, and we're well aware that in God's plan, sometimes the persecutor may end up more like Sisera than like Saul. He may end up not preaching the gospel, but with a tent peg through his head. And we ask God then, Lord, either save them like Saul or judge them like Sisera. We ask God, like my friend Justin Huffman has said from Psalm 58, that God would either break their hearts or that he'd break their teeth. So not only do we have an example of prayer for vengeance in this psalm, but we have plenty of historical precedent to teach us that such prayers and such answers are sometimes just what is in order for those who touch the pupil of God's eye. And then just listen again to what the psalmist actually requests of the Lord. After he reminds the Lord of his judgment in the past, he says, Oh my God, verse 13, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever, and let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. Now, those are strong words, aren't they? Particularly, verse 17. Let them be humiliated and perish. Kill them, God, and do it in a way that puts them to open shame so that they will know that you are God. But I just want you to notice, in the midst of those very real prayers for judgment, I want you to notice just a little nugget of gospel mercy. Looking again at verse 16. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name. Fill their faces with dishonor, not period, but that they may seek your name, O Lord. Isn't that marvelous? In the middle of these cries for judgment, these legitimate calls for God's wrath to come, is this little olive branch of hope that perhaps God's wrath might startle these hate mongers awake so that they would actually seek the Lord and his name. I find that fascinating as it's just tucked in here carefully. And I hope that your prayers, whether they be for the dictators of the world or the Islamic militants or the unjust governments or the abusive husbands or the military police who round up Christians and throw them in jail, I pray, I hope that your prayers are always sprinkled liberally with this kind of hopeful request. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name not because they deserve mercy god but because you deserve them god deserves the praise even of the persecutors doesn't he that's what the psalmist is getting at in verse 18 isn't he god deserves that they may know that you alone whose name is the lord are the most high over all the earth That's the ultimate goal of the psalmist, that God would be praised. Not just that he would be able to feel like, yes, God got him, and we can feel justified now. We can feel happy that our enemies are gone and done away. But what he wants is that God would judge them or God would awaken them so that they would know that he is the Lord. And they will know that. Everyone will know that eventually, won't they? They will learn these things. Even as they careen over the precipice into the lake of fire, they will know that the Lord is the most high over all the earth. But God's glory will be even more manifest if they learn that lesson here and now and bow their knees willingly instead of begrudgingly and in hell. That's the nugget of hope in verse 16, that they may seek your name, O Lord. And Jesus teaches us that this sort of prayer, Matthew 5, should not only be a nugget in our prayer life about persecutors, but a core principle. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Make no mistake, God gets glory when he judges his enemies. There's no question about that. For instance, had the Lord in the middle of the last century, destroyed those Waorani or Alka Indians in Ecuador who in cold blood murdered his servants, Jim Elliott and Nate Sane and the others, had he destroyed them, he would have gotten glory for that vengeance. And he would have been just and right and holy and good to have thrown them into hell. And he would have been praised to all eternity because he was just in doing it. But how much more glory has he gotten through the families of those men loving their enemies and praying for those who persecuted them? That story of those women who went back to that tribe and loved them and won them to Christ has gone around the world and has demonstrated the very essence of what Christianity and Christian missions are all about. And God is praised all the more because he filled their faces with dishonor that they would seek his name. And they did, and they have. So yes, there is a place for praying, verse 13, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. But there is also every reason to pray, verse 16, fill their faces with dishonor. Not simply for dishonor's sake, but fill their faces for dishonor that they may seek your name. And whatever the Lord's pleasure concerning the persecutors, let us always remember even more so to pray for the persecuted. Our brothers and sisters, as though we were in prison with them, as though we were mistreated with them, as though we were widows with them. Picture them, these brothers and sisters of yours right now, who, like Paul and Silas, perhaps are languishing in prison. Picture them who, like our Lord, have lash marks up and down their backs. Picture those who never know when the police might burst through the back doors and round them up and take them away on a Sunday morning. Picture those who to this day are burned alive because they love and read God's word and pray for them, verse 1, O God, Do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. And, oh God, do not be still.